So to everyone tuning in, hi and welcome to a special True North event, which is being recorded live and it is exclusively attended by our True North Insiders. True North, True North Insiders are the reason that we exist as an organization. As you know, True North does not accept any funding from the government. And so to just stay afloat, we rely on the generous support of our viewers and our readers. So Insight Club members are top supporters. They donate at least $10 every month. And by giving a monthly contribution to True North, you're helping us stay in operation. In addition, True North Insiders receive exclusive perks and prizes, including an annual Christmas gift, exclusive content, early access to news releases, dedicated to uh, dedicated Q&As with True North Fellows, such as this one that we're doing right now. So if you would like to support True North and you'd like to become a True North Insider, uh, simply head on over to tnc.news donate and consider making a recurring monthly donation of $10 or more. So, so that's it for this feel for the, uh, for the True North Insiders Club. As far as the event tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by True North Fellow and newly published author, Lindsay Shepard. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me and congratulations, a big congratulations on the release of your new book. It's excellent. I can't recommend it enough. I've had the pleasure of reading it already and I can't recommend it enough. The book is called Diversity and Exclusion, Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis. And it was released, uh, I think it was just released a few days ago. How, how long has it been out, Lindsay? I think it was March 24th. So about six, seven days a week, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, it's already got some very positive reviews on Amazon. I think you've got a 4.8 out of five star ranking, which I believe is higher than any of my books. So that's great. The people who are reading this book love it. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the book and then we will get into our Q&A with the author, Lindsay Shepard. So everyone watching this is probably very familiar with what happened to you, but let me just go over it a little bit. Back in 2017, then 22-year-old graduate student and teaching assistant Lindsay Shepard was brought into a disciplinary meeting where two professors and a diversity office bureaucrat told her that one or more people had complained about the communication studies class that she led. She's never told how many people complained, nor the alleged complaints, uh, what they said. Lindsay was accused of creating a toxic climate, of targeting trans folks, of spreading transphobia, and of violating Wilfrid Laurier University's sexual assault and gender violence policy. That, that, that was always just so shocking to me that they, that they told you that you had violated a sexual assault and gendered violence policy is outrageous. Um, and all of that just for the sin of playing a five minute clip about pronouns in her classroom and leading a neutral conversation on the topic. As we all know, that was five minute clip uh, was of Dr. Jordan Peterson, the famous clip of him on um, the show with Steve Pakin um, on Ontario television. Uh, so the game changer in all this, of course, is that Lindsay secretly recorded the disciplinary meeting and released the audio to the media. In the ensuing year of graduate school, Lindsay staved off university censorship clashed with academic activist Cabal that was out to get her and dealt with going from a no one to going viral. This tell-all book reveals what it was like to be the center figure of a national controversy. So again, welcome Lindsay and congrats on the book. Thank you. So, so before we get into the content of the book, I, I wanna just ask you a little bit of a few questions about the process because I know a lot of people want to write a book. A lot of people say they're going to write a book, but not very many people can actually finish it and publish it. So first of all, what was it that made you want to write this book? I would say the main motivation was getting the whole story and all of its complexities 
onto paper in one document where the whole story is there. Um, and it was also for my own benefit because I've repeated the story of the Laurier controversy so many times. And now I can just tell people, just buy the book. I don't have to, I don't have to explain it anymore. Um, and there's so much that, um, well, I mean, the Laurier controversy was big in the news in 2017, nationally, of course, but also in some international outlets. And the story in the news was kind of, you know, there was the disciplinary meeting and the secret recording. Then the university kind of flubbed with their response. And then the university apologized and said that there was no complaint after all. And I think for a lot of people who were just following the mainstream media stories, um, that was kind of that. And the, the university apologized and there we go. But, you know, there was so much more happening behind the scenes and there was so much more that happened after. And a lot of it isn't necessarily newsworthy. It's just things like being gradually alienated by your peers and by your professors. Um, and that's, I think, an interesting and relatable story for a lot of people that, you know, should be a book. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things that really comes through in the book, Lindsay, is, I mean, I find it sort of the irony of the whole thing is that they accused you of bullying, they accused you of creating a toxic environment, um, of being harsh to trans people. Um, but but in reality, what, what was happening was that you were the one that was being bullied, you were the one that was being uh, sort of canceled at, at your own university. And I think that m most people wouldn't have realized that, like you said, you know, the university issued an apology, end of story, done deal, we all lived happily ever after, but, but the reality was, was so much more complex. So when, when you were putting together this book and writing it, what, what, what did you find was the biggest sort of challenge or what was the hardest part about writing this book? Um, so this book is a memoir. So I kind of had to relive the Laurier controversy again, which is an interesting experience because I had to go through, I wanted everything to be accurate, of course. Um, that's just what I wanted to do. That's what I believe you should be doing when you're writing a memoir, a nonfiction book. So I had to go through my old Laurier email account. Um, I went through all of the old articles and it really was like reliving the controversy again. <laughs> um, and I think I was pretty resistant to doing that. I, I was almost like, no, I don't want to touch this. Like, I don't want to enter the password to this Laurier email account. Um, but eventually I just sat down, got it done. It's very interesting to write a book where, where you are the main character, um, but it's also a lot of fun for people who have a story to tell. Um, yeah, in, in my case, you know, I was someone who went from having no social media, no public presence to someone who was in the center of a controversy and uh, people were, were writing articles that were critical and supportive. And so I kind of, document all that and what it was like. Well, I think it's really important that you did that. And I think that's really the value in the book. So let's let's sort of go through what, what happened. Uh, one of the things I learned about you in this book, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I knew about it, about you already, because you posted that, um, that video on YouTube a couple of years ago saying why I'm saying goodbye to the left or why I'm no longer on the left. So I, I knew you weren't a conservative or, 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 you know, someone on the right of the political spectrum. But in your book, you sort of talk about how you were really excited about grad school, you loved learning, uh, you're sort of a hardworking person, you've always had multiple jobs, and, and you like to be engaged. And when you got to Laurier, you started feeling sort of disillusioned uh, with, with university. And 
and and you talk about how you, you felt sort of disappointed but how like shallow your classes were and and how uh the postmodern uh postmodern ideology was sort of taking over academia so can, can you describe how you felt at laurier prior to this whole um this whole debacle with the um jordan peterson clip yeah so i was feeling disillusioned since september pretty much when i entered grad school and i i talk about that in the book um just about how you know i was so excited for grad school because i thought this was the gathering of people who are very curious about the world and they're very open-minded they're willing to talk about anything but instead i found the opposite in that um a lot of my professors were kind of activists. A lot of the students were activists. And it seemed that a lot of the time, ideological conformity was the goal of grad school. Um, and not to mention, just I found the academic standards uh, quite low, which, I mean, you could attribute that to Wilfrid Laurier University as a middle of the pack kind of school, or you could, it's probably attributable to Canadian post-secondary at large. Yeah, and so I, I started Googling things that I had never Googled before, um, such as why is my grad program all about feminism and colonialism and Marx? And I think that was just the beginning because before I had never done anything like that. Uh, I just thought, you know, whatever they teach you is like what you need to know. And it's, it's really important. But I, I really started to feel when I got to grad school, like what is going on here? And maybe that was kind of when I, I, that's kind of when I started to be exposed to Jordan Peterson. Um, I started watching a couple things, reading reading some articles from publications like Aereo, which is kind of like Quillette, which is kind of like a free thought platform. Um, and I started opening up to these different ideas. And so when I came across that TV Ontario agenda with Steve Pakin panel about um, pronouns, I thought, oh, this is this is really interesting. There are lots of different viewpoints being presented here. Uh, I wonder what my class would think about this. It just so happens that the next class is going to be about grammar. Um, we've, you know, pronouns is a topic in our textbook. Let's see what my class thinks about this. Um, because I didn't have a strong opinion myself. And of course, that was a problem. That was the problem is that I was neutral on this topic of gender pronouns, but how dare you? Um, did, did you have an impression back then that Jordan Peterson and his ideas were taboo? Like, did, you know, you said that you're non-ideological and you, um, you didn't really expect your graduate program to be so full of Marxism and, and feminism. When you, when you encountered Jordan Peterson, did you know that, that he would lead to this kind of example? Did you have an inclination that he was sort of becoming toxic? I know it was 2017, which is before a lot of his big famous sort of flares like the one with Kathy Newman and 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 some other things that that ended up helping you know get him canceled or branded as extreme but but at the time in 2017 did you did you have that feeling I think I was very interested in what he had to say um, I had never seen anyone like this before like Jordan Peterson but I I was also you know way younger back then and I was really influenced by how people kept saying he's dangerous and I think I was influenced by the negative opinions. And so I was really approaching with caution. And so that's why in the original secret recording, I say in the meeting, you know, I'm not a fan of Jordan Peterson. You guys think I am, but I'm not. And well, here we are a couple of years later and I'm definitely a fan, so. 
Well, that's good. Uh, I, one of the things I, I noticed you, you talked about was, you know, there's all these concepts that we have floating around, like political correctness on campus and, and postmodernism, and they are sort of abstract concepts. But to you, I mean, you, you lived through them, you know exactly what they feel like, not just what they are in theory. Um, so can you sort of explain what, what that was like? Yeah, so it's just, that's what I think is great about this book is everything's from the first person. And so, you know, political correctness, um, you know, the suppression of free speech and censorship, I don't have to explain it as an analysis because I just have to recount what I, what I lived through at the university. And, um, you know, just one example is how the transgender activists from the Rainbow Center at, at the university, they would often invoke this, you know, idea that speech is violence and stuff like that. And so you really become entrapped in, in what their ideology is. They're, they're using it on you. Um, so I, I recount all that. I, I put their statements in the book. Um, that's what, you know, this is the kind of documentation aspect is these statements are in the book. They're all there for, for everyone to read. And it all, it all comes together quite nicely, I think. Well, and, and I think that's also what makes the book very accessible. Like, like I think that this could be a great book for university students, even high school students, um, people who aren't necessarily aware of what's going on on university campuses, but maybe they want to know, you know, what's to come. Um, and, and I mean, you know, the, the idea that you just explained that, that speech is violence, just, just out of curiosity, did you ever subscribe to that way of thinking, like prior to this incident, would you have uh, sort of agreed with that analysis that some speech is equivalent to physical violence? Um, possibly. I think I might have almost gone there. Okay. Um, but luckily I was steered away. Well, you, you say that they kind of trap you in it and, and, and it's true because they you know, they're so warped in their ideological thinking um, and they're so convinced of their own self-righteousness and their moralism um, that, that, that they believe their own nonsense. Like to, to someone like me reading it, it's like, the, the, you know, these statements and these kind of things that you include in your book, they, they make me laugh because they, they feel like, you know, they're straight out of an Orwell novel. Uh, but to the people reading it, you can tell that they believe it. They're zealots and they believe firmly in what in what they believe, which makes them... I think all the more all the more dangerous. So, Lindsay, let's go back to that that fateful day um, that you got hauled in front of this um, tri tribunal. Uh, I, I think it's more accurately called the Star Chamber. But but so so you 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 showed this clip to your students in your class. Um, the students I think were almost the same age as you, weren't they? They're maybe a couple of years younger than you. A couple of years younger. Mm -hmm. Younger. Okay. So you, so you had a debate. Uh, I think that, that you thought it went pretty well. There was an interesting back and forth and no one seemed really offended. Um, and, and, and then just, why don't you just walk us through uh, what happened? What happened in, in real life? Yeah. In the classroom? Yeah, so that's the thing is people have this impression that, that students are so fragile and you know, there's snowflakes and they can't handle discussion. And a lot of you know, academics and higher education professionals, they lend credence to this view. But when I showed that TVO clip in my class, there were no tears, no one stormed out of the room. It was all fine. Um, and after that, I don't know what transpired because no one came to me to complain. 
Um, the university later said that there wasn't any complaint and that's still a mystery. We still don't know how, how someone found out what went on in the class and then it somehow got to a diversity bureaucrat. Um, it's, it's all still a mystery and it might be forever. Well, it, I, I, in my head, it just, it runs like a, like a total satire, like, you know, some, some suck up to the teacher, you know, one of the teacher's pet that, that wants to go into a PhD under one of these professors mentioned that, that Jordan Peterson clip was shown in your, in your classroom and, and he just, you know, couldn't handle that and, and absolutely, you know, ran with it. Um, so, so, so you got an email saying, uh, Lindsay, you've, you've violated our policy. We, we want to talk to you or, or why don't you walk us through the next, uh, the next steps there? Well, I got an email that was a lot more vague. So I got an email saying there are some concerns with the content in your class. And that was from Nathan Rambucana, my, my supervising professor for that communication studies class. And I guess his vagueness was the red flag to me. Because if you're not willing to just tell me what the problem is um, over email or just give me a phone call or whatever, um, but instead you need to organize this big meeting where there's going to be a diversity and inclusion person, then I'm kind of like, whoa, like <laughs> this just sounds kind of way out of proportion. And it was that kind of red flag that uh, made me want to secretly record the meeting where exactly they told me uh, that I violated the gendered and sexual violence policy, as well as they also said I violated the Ontario Human Rights Code and Bill C, Bill C-16 itself. Um, so they did. Which, which validates Jordan Peterson's law. whole point, right? <laughs> the whole it point was. of his, you know, discussion on TVO there was that it was going to become illegal to just talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they couldn't see that, though, the irony in that. Okay, there's so much irony in this story, Lindsay. So, so you, you, you get pulled into this classroom. Um, was, was it a classroom or an office? It was an office, an office with these three professors or two professors and one uh, bureaucrat. I, I, I have asked you this question before, but what was it that made you record the video? Because, you know, you're, you weren't a journalist at the time. You, you know, you're, you weren't someone who um, were just, you know, would record things because you wanted to refer to them later if you were writing about it or if you were doing a podcast or something. Um, I, I still find it one of the most remarkable things that you had the foresight to bring your laptop and record that meeting. And, and let me tell you, every time I am doing a meeting where I'm not exactly sure what, what's gonna come out of it or if I, you know, I'm talking to someone, um, I always record it. And that's something I had to learn uh, as a journalist. And there have been several times where I wish I had recorded something, but I didn't. Um, so you know, 20, 22 year old Lindsay Shepard, what, what was it that made you record this meeting? Yeah, it was just that it was so fishy, the whole thing. And it was just an instinct that I probably need to protect myself here um, it's just me going in with these people who, you know, have power over my future at the university, especially because my, my MA program supervisor was there, my master's program supervisor, and he has nothing to do with the teaching assistant role. So I was kind of thinking, what is he doing here? Uh, you know, is my standing as a student at risk because of this one clip I played in, in a class? So I think I just knew I need some record of what's happening here. Well, and I mean, just I, I, I can't imagine how scary that must have felt. I mean, I, I think, 
you know, it, it could be terrifying. You're, 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 you're across the country going away for school, doing your master's, you're probably paying a bit of money to be there. And all of a sudden, you know, you have these three supervisors, two male professors and one female bureaucrat calling you in. I, I, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm impressed that you were able to maintain your composure, even in that kind of a situation, because I mean, I think most of the reason, part of the reason why it became such a big national story is because people were just so outraged by the way that you were treated. Forget about the ideology of these professors and the crazy uh, tirades that were going on, but just the way that you were treated as a, as a young student, a young woman, like it's just so, totally off bounds. So, so how did you feel uh, while you were being uh, talked to or interrogated by these professors? I actually wasn't scared um, because when I received that email from Nathan Rambucana summoning me to the meeting, I, at that point I was like, wow, if, if this is what the university is, then if they're going to kick me out, then kick me out. Like I'll fight, but, but um, I don't want to be a part of this. And so I think I, I was a little bit, um, I don't know, empowered by that. So I didn't go in scared. I went in baffled by what they were saying um and maybe just feeling kind of that's why i cried in the meeting is i was very confused i was dreadfully confused as to why like higher ups at the university like professors were telling me that you know this is not a place for open debate because it just went counter to everything i believed um, and i really revered the institution of the university I was hoping to go into academia. Um, I felt very at home at the university and for them to put all of, just throw all that out, it was very confusing. Um, but when I, again, when I walked out of the meeting, when, when it was over, I thought this, in my mind, this has now become an issue of public interest because universities, people need to know what's going on. Um, and. Yeah, I'm glad I did that, right? Because I, I want people to know what's going on right now. I mean, COVID stuff aside, what do we really know about what's happening in universities? The stuff that leaks out, it's so slight. We don't really have a full picture of what's going on unless people are willing to, to tell. Well, absolutely. And um, I, I, I think, again, that's part of the reason why your story really struck a chord because you know, we had a feeling that there was something bad going on at schools, but I don't think that many people realize just how bad it had gotten. Uh, so what happened next, Leslie? What, what made you take that recording and go to the media? And how did you, uh, you know, again, a 22-year-old grad student in Waterloo, uh, not in the media, not a journalist, how did you end up getting that audio recording into um, the mainstream media into the National Post and then and then you know into newsrooms and newspapers across the country. So I once I became just certain that this is an issue of public interest, uh, this needs to be public. I right after I came out of the meeting pretty much I started googling journalists just kind of around the local area um, and I just would look at ones who specialized in kind of free speech stuff. And one article that popped up was how um, Christy Blatchford, the now late Christy Blatchford from the National Post, she had had a speech shut down at the University of Waterloo in 2010. And so I thought, oh, okay, she, this will probably be interesting to her then. This is very local and stuff. And um, 
I sent it to pretty much every other news outlet as well. And, but Christy Blatchford was the first to reply. And uh, she called me the next morning and I think broke the story the next day or maybe a couple days later. And then sort of, I mean, Chrissy Blackford is absolutely, uh, you know, top tier, one of the best uh, journalists Canada's ever seen, in my opinion. Um, so it's not surprising, but tremendous that she picked up your story. And then was it simultaneously that the audio got leaked or how did that happen? So I, when I sent uh, the email to these different media outlets, I told them I have a recording and uh I, and like now I, I know how important that is what that I'm working at True North that when someone comes with that like proof it's so important um so I guess I kind of knew that back then in, in some way um I asked Christy please don't mention that I have this recording I let her listen to it of course and I let her pull quotes from it but I said please don't um, publicize that I recorded it because I don't know if what I did was legal um, and she said, okay, no problem. It just, it just looks like I, I have a good memory uh, in the article with the direct quotes. Um, but yeah, I later found out it is legal to record because only one person in the room needs to know that there's a recording going on. And so in that disciplinary meeting, it was me who knew that it was being recorded. Yeah. And I think it is different in, in different jurisdictions, but, but, but in Ontario, yeah, that's, that's right. So so the story just kind of took off, like it became the biggest news story, I think in the country, and it definitely went beyond just Canada. Um, I was down in California at the time and I remember hearing about it and seeing it not just through social media, but people were talking about it. Um, what, what was that like uh, for you just sort of very quickly going viral and having your story told? And, I mean, having your story told in a very favorable way, like I think that the early media coverage of what happened was incredibly favorable, probably vindicating you and, 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 and really showing how awful uh, you were treated. What, 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 was, what was that like? Yeah, so there was the original article that came out by Christy Blatchford. And after that, I kind of thought, okay, well, there we go. The story's out. Uh, that's all I wanted. Now my work is done uh you know um but then a couple days later I did just kind of more interviews and more just kept coming in and I just kind of did it uh I didn't have any PR help or anything I just told the story to pretty much every outlet that asked um yeah and I mean it wasn't just I mean you were on the biggest sort of conservative shows and podcasts at the time you were on with Dave Rubin um you were on the rebel I think I think you did an interview with Jordan Peterson as well at that time or maybe that was later I don't know that was around the same time yeah that was on louder with Crowder okay but then but then you also um were part of the mainstream media I mean I remember seeing you do an interview on the CBC uh you were global you were really um and and again treated very fairly and favorably in those in those outlets so was that was that surprising to you what was that like yeah so when i first decided to go to the media i knew that it could go either way and it wouldn't necessarily go in my favor but i decided to just kind of throw my hands up and say 
whatever people perceive it to be, then fine. Like there is a chance that uh, this could go very wrong and I might have to, you know, change my name and like move somewhere else. Uh, because when you Google me, I'll, I'll be like some sort of transphobe bigot. Uh, but I was lucky that that didn't happen. And, and so you're right, I did feel vindicated. And um, just the positive comments that I was seeing, you know, it made all my doubt kind of wash away. Um, were, were there any sort of got you interviews at the time? Was, was there ever anyone that was really sort of doubting you or questioning you in, in those early interviews? I remember doing one interview um, on CBC radio. It might've been Carol Off. I can't remember though, but I just remember thinking this, this person from the CBC sounds like they really don't want to talk to me. It was just the tone of voice. Um, she just sounded kind of exasperated. She was kind of like, okay, so hi. <laughs> but that, I don't think there were any gotcha interviews. Just, just, she was way too busy and important to be talking to some, some lowly uh, university student, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, and, and so uh, you got to travel, uh, you, you outlined this bit in your book as well. You got to go to California, you got to go to Australia. Um, what, what, was there a highlight uh, for you at that time or was it all just one big uh, highlight? It was pretty much all one big highlight. And maybe the peak though was going to Australia. Because uh, I had that moment, and I, I describe it in the book, where, you know, I'm, I'm flying uh, first class to Australia to, to do a speech. I just think, I don't think my life is going to get any better than this, so I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty special, uh, getting to do that. Uh, so so that, that's not where the story ends, though, Lindsay. That's, I, maybe that's where a lot of us, uh, you know, it, it ends for a lot of us because, you know, you, you were this household name, this explosive story. Everyone was so outraged by the way you were treated, uh, not just by the way you were treated, but by the contents of what they were saying, that, that showing a, a neutral clip of, of Jordan Peterson was like showing a neutral clip of Hitler um, or, or Milo Yiannopoulos, which apparently is equally as bad. Um, so, so everyone was sort of shocked by that, but, but the story didn't, didn't end there. You know, you as, as Lindsay Shepard, the student, had to carry on and, and continue to go to your classes, continue to face those professors and your colleagues, your, your um, cohort in your, in your school day to day. And so I, I kind of remember seeing a little bit here and there of your tweets at the time talking about how your classmates were being incredibly rude to you. They were alienating you. No one wanted to talk to you anymore. They were kind of trying to make your life difficult. So why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened next? Yeah, so in, in the following semester, um, it was just kind of this gradual alienation. And I mean, one of the clearest examples is one of my professors, um, so for half of the semester, we were doing class presentations where that was all the class was, was we presented to one another. And I want to watch other people's presentations. I like learning the content and I like learning from other people's presentation styles. Um, and all of a sudden she announced that um, the class would only be who you invite to your presentation now. So the class was off for the rest of the semester uh, but when you do your presentation, you can just invite who you want. And so I, I realized uh, 
that everyone else had invited each other to the presentations except for me. And so I was the only one who had to leave the room. And the class was just canceled for just me for the rest of the semester. Wow. So, and that, that's why I think the title diversity and exclusion is so fitting because they don't want to include people with different viewpoints. They want to exclude. And I thought that was kind of a, a nice example of that. Wow. And, and I mean, so petty, right? Like what, what, what do you think that was going through their minds at the time that they, that you had sort of betrayed the institution and the professors or what, like why, why was it that, that they sort of turned their backs on you? Do you think? Um, yeah, I think they just had this feeling that I was tearing apart the entire university. I was, especially the communication studies department, um, that I was, you know, trying to destroy them. It, it was honestly this, feeling of when you're walking around on campus you're like a toxic person and you're like poisoning everything that's how they wanted to make me feel right and um yeah in, in some ways it, it kind of works i mean i can see what they're doing especially because for example uh before the controversy i was invited to you know the the coffee outings that we all went to as, as grad students and classmates but of course it kind of dropped off or someone, I had someone who I sat next to in Nathan Rambucana's lecture every week. Uh, but of course that stopped and she started sitting on the opposite side of the room and I sat alone. It's just that kind of stuff. Right. And it, it all kind of gathers together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of now we, we look at it and it's like telltale cancel culture. They just try to kind of unperson you and, and, and make you, you know, go away, disappear. Um, but, but for you actually living through that, um, you know, you really outlined how, how tough it was. Um, so what was it like from an academic standpoint, um, finishing, you know, I, I know you wrote about it a little bit, how you had some trouble finding a, a master's advisor for your thesis and, and that, you, you know, you, you were worried that they were going to fail you just because of what happened uh, from an academic perspective. How, how were things after that? I think they had to be fair in that regard um, at the end of the day, because there are, you know, appeal mechanisms within the university for academic grades. Um, and I think they wanted to avoid that. So I think I pretty much got the grades that um, I would consider fair. Well, that's good. Yeah. And how about, I mean, I know that a lot of people turned on you. A lot of your fellow students didn't want anything to do with you. Did you get any support? Uh, were, were, there, were there any professors that, that sort of came to your side? Any, any students that sort of let you know that they were with you or what was that like? Yeah, this is kind of the flip side. So this is the positive part is I made a lot of friends um, at the same time. And we started the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, which was, you know, pretty much a free speech club. And, you know, I have a lot of good memories from that time just kind of, you know, countering what the university was doing by saying, hey, it's okay to have uh, some non-mainstream speakers come in and, and we're allowed to talk about these different ideas. And so it was nice to be able to organize those events, talk to lots of people. Um, three professors in particular deserve a shout out. Um, David Haskell, William McNally, and Jordan Goldstein. They were the three professors at Laurier who were on my side, you know, on the side of free speech. 
and really fighting what the university was doing and trying to get the university to realize that free speech is important. Um, yeah. And I mean, the thing for you is, you know, you, you, were, you were gone after a year because you finished your master's program, but those professors that came out publicly to support you, I mean, that's their job, that's their life. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a big, a big risk for them as well. What is the state of free speech now at Laurier? It's hard to say. It's, it's so difficult when no one's really talking about what's going on inside. And that's actually why I decided to stay at Laurier is I thought, you know, these people probably want to get rid of me so bad because at one point I did think I'm going to leave. I'm just going to get out of here. And a lot of people were actually urging me to do that, to leave Laurier amid the controversy. Mm. Uh, but I decided, why would I do that? That's exactly what they want. So I'll just stay and I'll, I'll get my degree, uh, which I think was the right, the right choice. And I got to see what was going on in the inside. Um, yeah. Well, good for you for doing that. Uh, one of the things that still baffles me to this day is how, I mean, you became sort of like public enemy number one at, at Laurier. You started organizing these free speech events and, and, and they became increasingly controversial. Um, somehow your race got dragged into it um, and, and it started to become this thing, not just about how you were transphobic, but that you were also somehow a white supremacist. And I think the rationale went something like this, uh, because you're a white woman and your supervisor was uh, is an immigrant, I think, or the children of immigrants from, I think, Sri Lanka or something like that, um, that you were using your whiteness uh, as power over him or something like that. I remember uh, people accusing you of using uh, a pejorative called white girl tears um, which um, maybe maybe you can help uh, enlighten us as to what, what the heck any of that means. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. So they were trying to say that, you know, actually in this situation, as the low-level TA that I was, I held all the power because I had my white woman tears. And um, I cried during the meeting, which was some sort of display of power. <laughs> um but I mean, there was this, this writer named Yuri Harris who wrote in Quillette, I think the, artic the article was called White Woman Tears or something. And he breaks it down. He says, you know, there is a discussion of power in the Laurier controversy, but it's not to do with race. It's to do with job position. Um, it's to do with, you know, this diversity bureaucrat professors and me who's a low level TA. Um, race doesn't play into it. And I also say in the book, I mean, Herbert Pimlott uh, was my MA supervisor. He was also in the meeting and he is a white man. So what's the race dynamic there then? Right, right. And and I believe that these professors, didn't they get censured? Didn't they get like, uh, you know, leave with pay? So it's not like they lost out on anything. They just got like free money to do nothing, right? It's so unclear that the university was very, you know, unaccountable, not being transparent about what was happening, but they did disappear for a year. And uh, someone on Twitter gave me the advice, I don't know who it was, um, to check the sunshine list to see if they got paid in, in the year that they disappeared. And they were, they were, <laughs> they received their six figure salaries. So. Wow. Well, for people that don't know, the sunshine list is the uh, proactive disclosure in Ontario that lists all government employees that make over $100,000 a year. So the fact that both these professors are getting paid like that 
um, I think that does sort of display who who has the the power. It's, it's so interesting, Lindsay, because you know, just ten years ago, the idea of two male professors bringing in a female young student super uh, TA, you know, that would be clear power dynamic, right? That that these older established professors who are also men were sort of bullying this young student who's in a precarious position and she's a female. But then, you know, because everyone's woke now and because the world's gone crazy, uh, somehow the 22 year old has the power because of her, um, the tone of her skin, which uh, is so, so patently absurd. Um, you know, I laugh, but it's, it's actually not really funny. It's, it's kind of terrible and depressing, but but I digress. So let's talk a little bit about the reaction from Laurier, because I feel like you heard a lot of different things from a lot of different people. Again, at the time, you know, we just kind of heard, okay, the, the university apologized, done deal. But in your book, you sort of outline how it was a little more complicated than that. So can you can you outline a little bit of the back and forth with the uh, Laurier officials that you experienced? I mean, honestly, there wasn't much back and forth. Um, they would sometimes claim to the media that they were corresponding with me, but really they were just sending me copies of press releases that went out, um, I think before I even got any information. I remember there was this one time, um, I'm pretty sure they released a big statement to the news first and, um, and then to me like way later. <laughs> and so I, when, when like news agencies were calling me to ask about the statement, I was like, what statement? Um, so you know, maybe that was like part of their, their game, their strategy. But so, so they issued an apology at first, but then they kind of later defended what they did, didn't they? Yeah, that's the thing is because then um, the lawsuit chapter comes in. So, um, okay, let, let's, let's go to the lawsuit chapter then. Let's, let's, why don't you tell us about what, what the, what the status is? Tell us about the law school, the lawsuit. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, I decided, um, yeah, so I, Howard Levitt uh, was kind of, you know, helping me out throughout the controversy. He's a Toronto employment lawyer. Uh, he, would, he would just kind of give me advice sometimes or we'd correspond very, very occasionally. And um, he asked me if I wanted to sue the university. I think he asked me a couple times. And at first I said, no, I don't wanna do that. But then there was kind of a moment where I said, yeah, let's just see where this goes. This lawsuit might, you know, prove something interesting at the end of the day. It might prove the direction that we're going to go in regards to free expression on campus. Um, so that was launched in 2018. It's now 2021 and there's no movement on that case. Nothing to report. Um, because what, is, what, what are you actually suing them for? What is, what is the basis of the lawsuit? Um, I think the legal, the legalese is uh, shock and negligence. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff, emotional abuse okay. in legalese. Right. Right. Um, but, and so Jordan Peterson also sued um, for defamation um, because they compared him to Hitler and called him a charlatan and stuff like that. So um, then it gets kind of confusing because the university said they launched a third party case. So they're saying if Jordan Peterson was indeed defamed, then it is my fault because I released the recording. So it's kind of me who defamed him. 
So it's kind of this circular lawsuit thing going on. Um, and because Jordan Peterson's involved and he's been ill lately, um, the case has not progressed because it won't until he's better. Okay, interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about Jordan Peterson then. So, so at the time you said that he was starting to influence you, you had seen some of his videos online. I assume the videos were related to postmodernism since that's sort of what you talked about that you were dismayed by. Um, what, what was it like, uh, you know, cause I, I think after this whole thing happened, you got to meet him, he interviewed you, um, what, you know, what, what was your experience like meeting him and getting to know him a little better? I've actually only met him once and it was a quick handshake, uh, at one of his events in Toronto, uh, in January, 2018, I think it was, um, he had. I think he had just released 12 Rules for Life around then. And he was doing a talk at Wycliffe College, um, which is within the University of Toronto. And so, you know, we, me and my some of my friends from the Free Speech Club, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, we drove down from Waterloo to Toronto to see it. And um, there, I remember there was a huge line of people waiting to get their book signed by him. And so he had like no time, but so I was about to leave thinking, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna get to say hi to him this time. Uh, but then by chance, he was walking through the hallway for, I guess, some sort of break, washroom break, perhaps. And uh, he noticed me. And so we said hi. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. Okay. But 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 he did, uh, he did interview you. Is that right? I, I'm not just imagining that, am I? I think it was just the Louder with Crowder, where okay. it was that kind of, yeah, Stephen Crowder, Jordan Peterson, and I. And, and you had a discussion and a, and a sort of it went through what happened. It's interesting because I remember also at the time, these professors accused you of sort of being one of his students and sort of being an agent of, of, of Jordan Peterson. Uh, why, why do you think they had that impression? Yeah, well, that was actually Nathan Rambucana's first question to me or second question to me in the meeting was, uh, so you were one of Jordan Peterson's students, right? No, <laughs> never even, I don't think at that point I'd ever even been to Ontario. So, nope. Interesting. I've never been to, yeah. And to me, that's kind of sexist, right? Like he assumes that you couldn't possibly come up with this on your own, that you had to be sort of like acting under this nefarious uh, shadow of, of Jordan B. Peterson or something like that. Um, you know, why, 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 do you, why do you think he thought that? I actually saw that from a couple other people too, just on, on Twitter and social media that uh, they thought someone else was behind everything I was doing. Um, I don't know, I guess it's just underestimating people is part of what they do, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I sometimes get that too, where people, again, like in the dark corners of the internet, but sometimes more broadly, they'll say like, oh, uh, Candace Malcolm, she used to work for Jason Kenney, like she's just a puppet for Jason Kenney or, oh, you know, her husband does this. She's just a puppet for her husband. And to me, I always feel like it's based in like some kind of sexism, but maybe, maybe it's just, you know, people being awful uh, because it's the internet and that's, that's what people tend to do. Um, Lindsay, let's talk a little bit about universities. Um, you know, you, you lived through it. Uh, you, you saw the, the worst elements of, of your school. And I think that really what it shined a light on was, was what the environments 
is like at universities across Canada and probably around the world. Um, I, I just sort of wonder, you know, this, this tendency towards Marxism and postmodernism, uh, you know, it's, it's as bad, it's worse than we think it is. What, what's your impression of, of universities now having gone through all this? I, I still believe that they can be redeemed. I'm not ready to give up on the university. Um, that being said, I think now I know what to look for. You can kind of tell by a course syllabus or even a description, you know, if it, if it has the word social justice, you want to stay away from it, for example, because it's going to try to get you to toe an ideological line. Um, and before I hadn't known that. So I actually remember looking back at the Communication Studies 101 course outline, the syllabus, and that was the course I was a teaching assistant for. And it actually said that uh, in this class, we take a social justice approach to communication studies. And I, before I would just kind of skip over that um, because I wasn't invested in these issues. So I think, okay, sure, whatever. But now that's something you want to stay away from, right? Um, I guess campus free speech is not at, at top of mind right now because of COVID. I mean, no one is even gathering at universities at all. So it's hard to say. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's gotten any better. I think it is getting worse all the time. And people pretend it's not happening. Uh, the thing is, if you don't have any, if you don't express any non-mainstream position, then you'll probably never have any encounters with the activists who, are, who will try to target you or whatever. Um, so a lot of people who don't express any kind of different opinion, they'll go on thinking that, oh, there's no problem, it's all good. And they continue to disseminate that viewpoint, which is very wrong. Well, uh, two things I wanna pick up on what you said. One, you know, you're, you're now a trained mind, so you know what to look for. But the reality is, I mean, you just skimmed over social justice because it didn't mean anything to you at the time. And it was just another university buzzword. But, you know, there's so many young people out there that just don't know that. They don't know that social justice is code for Marxism or postmodernism. Uh, they don't know what to look for, or, or they might not have a choice. It might be pushed down their throats at a younger age, like in high school or, you know, in a, in a general, you know, poli-sci 101 class. So I, I worry that it, that it is getting harder and harder to, to avoid, but also, you know, you talked about how COVID, nothing's really happening right now. Maybe, maybe this is an opportunity uh, for, for some change that, that, that when things come back, they, they, they can be different. Uh, what, what do you think we can do to, to improve uh, things at universities? Um, well, one thing I suggest in the book is just close diversity offices. Um, and it's very interesting because I was actually listening last night to a discussion with James Lindsay, who was part of, he's, he wrote the book, um, Cynical Theories. He was a co-author of that book, mm -hmm. How Activist Scholarship Destroys Everything, mm -hmm. I think is the subtitle. And he was on Michael Malice's podcast. I listened to a snippet. And he said that, you know, these kind of diversity and inclusion, critical race people, their ideology is actually not convincing to that many people. And so that's why they need all this infrastructure and these offices to try to convince everyone because otherwise they're not buying it. And so they have to pour all this money, um, create all these jobs to try to 
force people to think a certain way, um, which I thought was an interesting perspective. And so, yeah, I think we, we just need to close these offices because their sole purpose is to get you to become an activist uh, or at least just have the correct position on all cultural issues, you know, be, being pro-choice, um, you know, uh, letting trans women into women's shelters. They, they're just training you. Brainwashing you. And we, we sort of saw that or felt that I, I did anyway last summer when the sort of riots were erupting in cities across North America. And all of a sudden we were all told that, that everything about our society was racist and we're all institutional racists and everything was white supremacy. It's like, you know, the, 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 this culture from university campuses just moved into the mainstream. And while there's a lot of virtue signaling out there uh, and a lot of sort of like forced uh, apologies that you see, I, I, th I think most people just sort of like you said, they kind of roll their eyes. Um, anyway, uh, well, well, Lindsay, this is, this is great. Uh, uh, again, I think your book is fantastic and I'm really glad that you wrote it. And I'm glad that you, you put it out. Uh, we've, got, we've got a bunch of our True North insiders tuning in and watching this live. So why don't we go to some questions? If it's the viewers, anyone watching, if you have a question, you can either raise your hand or you can just uh, in the chat here, uh, write, write a question and I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll do my best to, to try to answer it. I got, I got a couple of questions that were sent in um, already. So, so maybe I'll go to one of those first. Um, this question says, Lindsay, in addition to your experience at Wilfrid Laurier, you were banned on Twitter because of an exchange you had with the infamous Jessica Yaniv. You've also been critical of Bill C-16 and the trans movement in Canada. For those people that accuse you of being a transphobe, what is your response to them? Um, yeah, I just, I don't really hate anyone. I'm not a hateful person. I'm not. And I remember Christopher Hitchens is the one, the late Christopher Hitchens is the one who said, um, you know, phobia implies that you're scared of something. He always said that about Islamophobia. That was one of his favorite, like his famous things on YouTube was, uh, he's, he's not scared of Islam. He's, you know, critical of it. Um, so yeah, I'm not uh, hating anyone. I'm not scared of anything. Um, I just saw a threat to open discussion and that's kind of where my focus remained. Um, I actually, yeah, I wasn't that invested in, in um, issues related to transgenderism. Uh, I, one line I have in the book is that uh, prior to the Laurier controversy, if you had asked me, are trans women women? like you know like one of those streeter interviews where they come up and ask you a random question and you don't have any time to process it mm. and they said that i'd probably be like um yeah sure <laughs> you know uh, but i'm lucky now that i consider the laurie controversy it was a very concentrated um education process and i don't mean education from the university i mean education from you know different sources and so i learned a lot from people who were writing about transgender ideology, like gender critical feminist thought, um, just people who had thought about the issue. Uh, so now I would definitely be on the side that says, no, biological males should not be in females prisons and, and stuff like that. Or sports or any number of things. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of didn't really get into that whole, that whole subject of sort of like the meat of what the, the Jordan Peterson clip was about, but the idea 
um, was of pronouns. And I, I remember at the time, Lindsay, I, I, maybe maybe uh, this shows how out of touch I was at the time, but but I remember at that time when the pronoun discussion happened, I had to look it up because I honestly didn't know what they were talking about when they said pronouns. Um, I thought, okay, maybe this means that, you know, if, if you're a woman who becomes a man, you want to be called he, if a man becomes a woman, you want to be called she. And, and I thought that was, that was the end of it. And then I, I looked up this whole pronoun discussion. I watched the whole uh, TVO clip there with um, Jordan Peterson. Um, and, and, and I, I think that the person who he's debating is talking about how, you know, you should, you should program into your phone, what someone's pronouns are. And, and, and there's no end in, in the number of pronouns that, that are just absolutely made up, like words that you've never heard of, like she and your and J and whatever. I, I literally never heard of that before, um, that, that moment. Um, but, but, but the idea that Jordan Peterson was saying was that, you know, this is all compelled speech. It's not, you, you can't force someone to call you something. You can't force someone um, to, to use the word that you prefer just because you're for it. It's, it's bullying, it's totalitarianism. Um, and and that, that's sort of the discussion that, that's sort of lost in all this, you know, like, I, I think the point he's made is reasonable, but now just saying these kind of things is, is again, considered violence and, and, and hate speech. Um, it's, it's great that you went out and did the research and actually learned sort of both sides and it's sort of sad that the university didn't present that to you. You had to go do that on your own time and it's considered sort of dangerous knowledge that you had. But um, I, I guess, you know, just to follow up, um, have your views really changed on the issue or? Um, do you mean throughout the Laurier controversy or, or after? Both, I guess, or whichever. Um, the thing is, I wasn't, I think a lot of people assumed that because I played that clip, I was somehow invested in the transgender question or like those kinds of issues, um, which I wasn't. So it did, I did have to learn quickly about all that. Um, so I, before I would say I probably didn't even really have that many views. Uh, I, it's just not something that was really on my radar. Um, yeah. And interestingly, I think, you know, since those, what, 2017, 2018, even 2016, when Jordan Peterson was first talking about compelled speech, now we're seeing almost a new dimension, which is where you're compelled to put your pronouns in your email, uh, on a name tag. You're seeing a lot of that now. And I don't think that was happening um, back then, but now I know like some government or university departments require it or they at least really encourage it. Yeah, I always kind of laugh when I see it. Like, I remember at the time again, that you know, the idea of putting your pronouns in your, in your bio was like a joke. And everyone that I knew was like making fun of it, kind of like, oh, my pronouns are like her Royal Highness and her majesty or whatever. Uh, but, but, but now, you know, sometimes I, I see people on Twitter where, you know, I, I exist sort of in like conservative Twitter. And then sometimes I, I accidentally get like sucked into liberal Twitter, left-wing Twitter, woke Twitter. And you kind of go down this rabbit hole and, and you see these people that are like genuine and serious and then they have their pronouns there. And you're, and you're like, really? I can, I can tell you're uh, she, her, because I'm looking at a picture of you, you know? And, and, and then, yeah, to your point that I know a lot of like corporate Canada and banks and stuff like that force their employees to, to do it, which is just, again, compelled speech, right? <laughs> um, all right, let's go back to some questions here. I'm getting a lot of people um, thanking you, Lindsay, saying congratulations. 
Uh, Penny says, I don't have a question for you right now. I just wanted to say thank you very much for all you have done. I know it must have been very hard for you. And then um, she, she says she does have one question. How is the baby? I, I guess he's not a baby anymore though, right? Yeah, he's two. So he's, he's a toddler. He's still my baby though. <laughs> he's good. That's great. All right, uh, Jennifer asks, she says, hi, Lindsay, what advice would you give to high school students considering going to university? That's a good question. Um, yeah, because like you said, um, the social justice stuff is starting in elementary school. And that makes it really tough because then by the time these students are getting to university, um, they're not even critical. They, they don't have the capacity to be critical or questioning about it because it's all they've ever known. Um, and I think, you know, we have more information coming from universities than we do from, from public schools. Um, yeah, we're, we're really in the dark as, as a public about that. What would I say is if you are going to university, you need to know what to look for. Um, and I know a lot of people suggest to go into the trades, go into sciences where you're not gonna be exposed to that, um, to any social justice ideology, and that's good advice. But also if, if we're kind of playing the longer game and, and we want the institution to become less biased, we want it to return to a place of free discussion, then we do need people who, who love the arts and humanities to stick it out. And um, I hope some people will step up to that and stick it out and um, help us bring back a culture of open inquiry. I, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's sort of one of those things though that the university sort of attracts like-minded people. Like I'll give you an example, say you're an undergrad and your teacher's a Marxist. The, 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 the students that are gonna excel the most and the students that are gonna be the most excited about the class material and, and the best prepared are going to be the Marxists, the fellow kind of travelers. And so they're gonna get to know the professors. They're gonna be the ones that get promoted into graduate school and getting their PhDs. And then in a few years time, they'll be the next guard of, of, of university professors. And you see that now um, with this sort of generation generational shift um, happening that a lot of the old sort of classical liberal-minded people, people like Jordan Peterson that I, I imagine used to dominate the academy um, are now retiring and leaving. And that more and more you're seeing these completely insane woke academics. And, and then, you know, they're not even pretending to, to, to be middle of the road. Like to them showing both sides is wrong as, as uh, your supervisor told you. And, uh, you know, we see it a lot even in the real world um, where, for instance, you know, a, a journalist used to want to be balanced, so they would want to like, okay, let's hear from a liberal, let's hear from a conservative. Uh, but then at some point they decided, well, no, conservatives are wrong and they're evil, so we're only going to show the liberal point of view um, on climate change. Um, they, they even openly say, you know, you can't have a balanced discussion, you can't say both sides when one side is based on this sort of prestigious liberal science, and the other side are these like, horribly unenlightened Neanderthals who are, uh, you know, who dare question our science. Um, and, and so they just don't, they just don't tell the other side of the story. So you, you kind of are seeing this continual closing, um, closing of the Canadian mind, right? Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's hard because conservatives get discouraged. People like you 
decide to leave university, you don't get your PhD, you decide to, to come work at True North instead, which is great for us, you know, we, we love you, but, but for, for, for future potential students, you know, instead of hearing from Lindsay Shepard, uh, they're going to hear from, you know, Marxist number 525 at the school. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, something needs to be done. <laughs> we need to either find a way to encourage more classical liberal or conservative minded people to go become professors, um, or we need to shake the whole thing up. Maybe the next conservative government needs to just completely defund universities. I don't know if that's something that that they would ever actually do um, or that they there would be appetite for, but I, I feel like something has to change. Yeah, I mean, in one video I did, um, I said, if you don't really have um, anything you are need to work towards right now, but you wanna make a change, then you should make it your goal to get a PhD in you know, social justice education from the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, which is called OISE out of the University of Toronto. It's a PhD in social justice education. Mm -hmm. And you should do that program or something like it. Um, get your degree, it's probably not that hard and become a diversity bureaucrat, but then do, do a 180. <laughs> and, you know, we need those people who will stick it out and change things up. And that goes for other, maybe just like a middle management position at a university. We do need people in the system. And if I, so now if you Google me, I mean, if a university were to Google me, they would not hire me. So that's just not going to happen. But for a lot of people, maybe there are no search results for your name yet. You're too young in, in your career or whatnot. Um, so you have a chance to, to go infiltrate. I'm not trying to use, you know, nefarious language, but you have a chance to infiltrate. Well, I mean, not just that, but like even becoming a professor, I mean, you get to influence classroom after classroom, the next generation of minds. I don't think that that's, that's a small feat. And I think that that can be an incredibly valuable um, experience. I, I, I kind of think, you know, conservatives hate quotas, like the idea of having a quota system where, yeah, you know, corporate boards have to be 50% female, or you have to have X number of different ethnic backgrounds on each, on each position, you know, sort of shy away from that. But in my mind, I think, you know, if we're really going to fight back against this problem, uh, we, we should demand some kind of a diversity of, of intellectual thought when it comes to universities. Could you imagine, Lindsay, if every university had to have equal number of left and right professors? Like, like for every Marxist that you hire, you have to also hire a libertarian or a classical liberal. I, th I think universities would look very different. Um, I, I don't know what, it, what, what that would say about, you know, having to out a university professor to say, like, are you a liberal or are you a conservative? I don't think that many professors would like that. And, you know, having lists of different ideolo ideologies could be a problem, but the, the idea is still there that, you know, if, if we're gonna fight back, um, you know, maybe we should try to use um, some of their own tools against them. What do you think? I actually remember um, law professor Bruce Party said that in the last True North event. What, which one was it? Um, the big tech censorship one. Yes, he said that we should treat conservatives like a minority group that need representation. That's interesting. I had never heard that before. There could yeah. be something to it. Well, I, I, again, I, I didn't hear that particular part of it. I'm going to go back and listen to it. But 
I think that that that, that if we're going to start fighting back, uh, exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean. Sometimes you do as a conservative, you feel like you you need some kind of extra protection and extra help. But all right, let's go to a couple more of these questions. Uh, so Kath asks, did you get familiar with Laurier policy in order to defend yourself? Um, I don't think there's anything that could have helped me because the bureaucracy is so, I mean, there was the gendered and sexual violence policy. I had violated it. Um, there were some other things that happened later that you have to read the book to find out where I, I the policy comes into question. But um, I mean, the university later enacted a, a free speech statement and the Ford government in Ontario actually then made that mandatory for every university to have a, a commitment to free speech on campus. Um, but my skepticism towards that was well, if you still have an entire diversity and inclusion bureaucracy, you already have these uh, sexual violence policies that say that you're not allowed to talk about pronouns in any kind of questioning way, then what is a free speech policy going to do? Is It doesn't look like it's going to stop any of this other stuff. Um, so, you know, the, the problem for me is getting rid of those, that bad policy. Just getting rid of the diversity inclusion offices, or because I, I've sort of seen it head in the opposite direction. It seems like every company and corporation now has, uh, you know, a chief diversity officer, a chief inclusion officer, and it's sort of like going from the universities and spreading everywhere. It's just a waste of everyone's time and and money. It's that's all it is. Yeah, it's it's like a make work program for all the Marxists in the university. Uh, another question here, someone asks, did the Conservative government of Ontario move to make funding of student unions optional, help with the ideology being pushed on university campuses? Do you know about that? I do know about that. Um, I remember seeing the outrage from a lot of student groups. Um, it's hard to say because I understood what was going on behind that program. For example, there are these things called PERGs on university campuses, public interest research groups. Um, so at Laurier, it was the LSPERG. And you have to pay them a fee. It's an, an, it's an automatic fee. It's, an, it's one where you have to opt out. So you have to fill out an application thing to opt out of paying them the fee. So they take all this money. And I remember looking at, at um, LSPERG's annual report and all of the money went to pay their own salaries for activities like protesting the Ford government. And they, they disclose it in the report. You're, we're just paying them for them to carry out their activism. They get office space on the university. So yeah, absolutely. Those groups need to be defunded. Ones like that are blatantly partisan and taking student money to fund their, their activism. It's so wrong. Um, so I think that the goal should be to defund those for sure. I think because class has unfortunately been out for over a year now, uh, it's hard to say what's going on with that. I don't think there was enough time to really see. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, again, I do think there's an opportunity with um, COVID, the fact that no one's really been going to schools, um, that, that maybe people will realize that they can get their education 
in other ways. And I, I think there's been some lawsuits against universities um, saying that, that students don't want to pay their full tuition because they're not getting the experience. I mean, can you imagine some of these American schools where tuition is upwards of $50,000 a year and you're paying that kind of fee to just sit at your house without any interaction, without any networking, without any of the fun of college? Um, yeah, maybe this is an opportunity for some disruption in the in the um, secondary school uh, area. Well, I don't know, because no one is even doing anything about their university being shut down. It just seems like they're pretty complacent. Like, OK, I'll, I'll pay full tuition to just be on my computer all day, stare at the screen, not get the full learning experience. Sure, sounds good. You know, I haven't seen anyone protesting that. If I was a student right now, I would be pretty outraged. Um, I'd be trying to mobilize to say, come on. And I I think a lot of professors don't like it either because um, they have to film themselves. And that means uh, the filming of their, the recording of their lecture can just be shown year after year, which means that they could be made redundant. (laughs) So, uh, but no one... I haven't heard of any protests in Canada at a university. Not in Canada, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. I, when you were saying that they don't like being filmed, I thought they were going to say uh, because they're sort of outed for their like outrageous ideology that they're being imposed. I just, like right before I started this um, broadcast, I was watching on Instagram a Charlie Kirk video and he had a professor, it was like a Zoom call and it was showing a, a student and a professor and the professor was trying to make the student talk about racism, but the student didn't want to. And it was like they're back and forth and you could just see how ideological the teacher is. Like they're trying to like force students to, to recognize race when they don't want to. And you can kind of see how bad, how bad it becomes. Well, I remember way back when YouTube was sort of new and all of a sudden you could have access to, I, I don't know why, but Yale University put its entire uh, first year lectures online. So you can go and do an entire um, semester of political philosophy 101 uh, taught by a Yale professor who goes through all the great um, the great thinkers, uh, you know, from Aristotle, like all the way up to John Locke or whatever. And, you know, you, you get these lectures and they're free. And I remember at the time thinking like, uh, like political philosophy was my favorite class in, in school. And I remember thinking like, why would anyone pay to go to university? when like your teacher is not going to be as good as this teacher is and he's doing it for free. Um, I think, I think the reason that most people go to university now is just for the credential uh, and and for signaling that they, that they were smart enough to do it. um, And because maybe they need it for a job, not necessarily because of what they can learn, because again, you can learn everything and more um, by yourself online at your own time as well. Um, All right, Lindsay, let's do a few more questions here. So Jim asks, Lindsay, why do you think 90% of professors are leftists? Some of these left-wing nuts are actually Marxists. How can that be? This is not representative of society at large. Yeah, Um, what was that study that we just did a video on at True North? 4% of uh, Canadian university arts professors are right-wingers and was it 90% or leftist? It was, it was definitely the majority. But um, why is a huge question. Um, part of it is if you're not a leftist, you'll feel intimidated and you'll leave, or they will intimidate you into leaving, which is 
I guess, where I would classify myself in a way, um, just having no entry path back in. So they kind of, you know, self-perpetuate. And also the problem is it's starting younger and younger. So in kindergarten or even before these, these kids grow up with um, social justice ideology, uh, it just becomes the default position and it just keeps reinforcing itself. Um, and they'll just, they won't hire anyone. That, that study by Eric Kaufman out of the University of London, it showed that these professors, these um, arts professors, they will not hire um, a Trump supporter. Um, they will not engage with a gender critical feminist. They will just shut it out. And so it means they continue to rule. It's, it's just sad. Yeah. I, I wish I could, uh, well, I, I think I'm trying to help. This book will help <laughs> wake I, people up. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I, I hope so. Again, it, it makes me think like, you know, we're going to end up in a world where we have parallel institutions, where if you, you know, are conservative, you're going to go to your own conservative school and, and, and everyone else will go to these left-wing um, factories. And you, you kind of have this like further polarization between the two sides. Uh, David makes a suggestion. He says, pay professors the average private sector wage of their graduates. Okay. Which I assume is not, is not very high for uh, some of these gender studies or um, critical race theory professors. Uh, that, that kind of makes me wonder, Lindsay, do you know what any of your fellow classmates from Laurie grad school, what they're up to? Um, what kind of jobs they went on to get? No, I don't really know. Maybe I should try to look at them on Facebook or something. But the thing is, there are a lot of high paying jobs for people who become diversity consultants or, or um, inclusion strategists, something like that. In a lot of cases, these are six figure jobs. Um, if you're a top, what is it, vice president diversity and inclusion at a Canadian university, you can be making $200,000, $300,000 a year. Um, so maybe, I guess that's not a private sector wage, but like you said, now private companies do have these people. And um, I think they are high paying jobs, unfortunately. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that. It makes it just feel like the whole thing is a grift. Like the fact that like, seriously, all these Canadian private sector companies now literally have chief inclusion officer and people whose job it is to just like like lecture the employees about how they're all horrible, sexist, racist people. And uh, there's not even anything they can do about it because it's all, um, you know, unconscious bias and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you know, you used to kind of laugh at people who go off and do gender studies degrees, uh, you know, useless degree, you're not gonna have any job after you graduate, but, but you know, the world is changing and now you're right, they do occupy uh, powerful positions. All right, let's try to get through uh, one or two more questions here. Uh, I alluded to this earlier, but this question says, Lindsay, you posted a video on YouTube saying goodbye to the left in 2018 in response to far left activists canceling one of your events. Do you consider yourself a conservative? Where do you consider yourself on the political spectrum now? Yeah, so I published that video in, I think it was March, 2018. And I think at the in the conclusion of that video, I said, just call me what you want. I'm not gonna label myself. Um, because at first I saw myself as a leftist and I tried to signal that during the Laurier controversy. But 
I realized um, I'm just kind of a default leftist. Like I just considered that the default position to be, which I think is the case for probably most young people. Um, and, but on upon further reflection, I realized, hmm, it, yeah, I don't consider myself a leftist. Do I consider myself a conservative? Um, I don't really consider myself a conservative, no. Sometimes I think I have some conservative positions, but even at, at the same time, those conservative party is kind of changing. Um, I see Candace sometimes tweeting about what the conservative party is up to. <laughs> what was it? Erin O'Toole said something about trans or equity, equity. Yeah. So they're kind of adopting the language, eh? Well, well, to me, equity is very different than equality. You know, the, the goal is to have equal treatment and equality under the law, more or less. But to, to, to all of a sudden start using these sort of radical terms like equity for trans people, I honestly don't even know what that means. But I would assume that that was coming from a far left political party, not the so-called conservative party. And there's, there's, yeah, a couple of, uh, uh, you know, problems there with, with the, with the party and its communications, but. I, I, th I think a lot of people have traditional values or conservative values without even really knowing it. And the, the, the problem for conservatives, big, big C conservatives like the party is, um, you know, trying to identify those people and connect with them about their values, not necessarily about their ideas, because I, I think you're right that a lot of young people kind of by default see themselves as left wing and a lot of Canadians see themselves as just sort of middle of the road or liberal. Um, because they don't have strong opinions one way or the other. So it, it's it's more important to connect with them based on values than than sort of ideology for me. But but I I I I I assume that you sort of you know come from a culturally conservative background and that you are a bit conservative, but I'll I'll take you at your word if you say you're not conservative. Um okay. I mean what do you think um because I have a family life and was that why you say that or? Yeah, you're married, you have a baby, you know, you're sort of traditional in that way. And it seems like you have a close relationship with your parents, you know, you, you're, you're hardworking, you started working for yourself. I think you write about this in the book that your first job you had when you were like 15 or something like that, like, you know, the value of hard work, the importance of community, um, the importance of family, all those things to me are, are conservatism. Okay, that's a good point. But I would, but, I would just call myself honestly a, a centrist, as um, you know, tainted a word that is for some people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, uh, leave that there. Uh, another question here. This is just a comment. I think Penny says just for interest, Amazon Prime TV has a channel called The Great Courses. The people giving the lectures are mostly professors from various colleges across the US. In my opinion, the great courses on Prime TV are excellent. Do you have any comment on that, Lindsay? I'll check it out. I don't have Amazon Prime TV, but I'm, I'll check it out. It sounds good. All right, let's do one more question. Uh, Lindsay, I am a conservative currently studying at the University of Toronto in the last few years, particularly while Trump was president. I often had to hide my conservative views and opinions in order to pass my classes and not be ridiculed. I know I'm not alone in my beliefs, but post-secondary schools are rife with far-left activists. How do conservatives on campus combat the bias of universities? 
Well, I would say um, you need your morale boosted. Um, and so it was important for me during uh, when I was at Laurier to have formed the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry and just have like-minded people around you um, to boost each other's morale. And I think that will leave you better off. That'll leave you with kind of some support. Um, it'll leave you with better arguments. You'll be able to hash out your, your points of view and have them ready to present. Um, yeah, so find other people. It might be difficult because a lot of people are just don't want to out themselves as <laughs> defenders of free speech. They, they would rather stay below the radar, but I would encourage people that there are strength in numbers and to, to join together um, when campuses are back and just in, in general in life too. That's really good advice. I, I remember when I was my last year of university, uh, I was taking a class on American foreign policy and I was the first person that had to do my presentation. Um, and, and I didn't really know like what to expect. So I presented and I sort of had a pro-American view at the time and talking about the good of, of American foreign policy. And, you know, I, during at the time, like it was kind of radio silence. I didn't really get very many comments, but I remember afterwards I had like five or six people come up to me and say like, thank you. I agree. It's so good to hear that there's other people that think this way that don't default think America is evil and America is doing wrong. And I mean, this was, this was during the Bush presidency when everyone hated America, right? But, but still, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is good to have camaraderie and to sort of out yourself because then you, you start to make, do you start to realize that you're not alone and, and you make, uh, you make some friends? So I, I think you eventually did that at Laurier, um, not to go too much into your personal life, but uh, I believe through through all of your activism and through your uh, free speech club, you ended up meeting your your now husband, who uh, is also uh, one of our employees at True North. So, uh, so I, I think I think things ended well for you, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to meet people. Maybe you'll meet your future spouse. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So the book is called Diversity and Exclusion, Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis. It's available on Amazon. If you do purchase it and you like it, don't forget to leave a five-star review. I think it's an excellent book and it really does um, deserve it. You can you can get it on Kindle right now and uh, read it over the weekend if, if you so please, or you can order it and get a uh, paperback version mailed to you. So Lindsay, thank you so much for your time and really thanks for uh, undertaking this really important project and writing this great book. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity because it was my fellowship at True North where you encouraged me to write the book. So thank you as well. Awesome. All right, let's, uh, let's leave it at there. Good night, everyone.